Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Ladcast. Today, the lads shall be discussing the new papal encyclical from Mr. Brig- um, Pope Francis, Fratelli Tutti. That was a very formal introduction, Nodar. Um, going off of Nodar's wonderful introduction, let's lay some ground rules for uh, discussing a papal encyclical. Good <laughs> idea. No, so I was just going to go over, you know, there have been papal encyclicals that have had infallible teachings in them. However, that does not make every papal encyclical infallible. Yeah, so that that was kind of my thing. Um, so yeah, I I've read through the whole thing. I'm not seen anything. We all know what uh, infallible statements in, in encyclicals look like. If you look back at like John Paul II. Um, What's an example? Can you give an example of like how? He, I don't, I don't have an example, but he says the, the normal infallible statement in the encyclical says something like, I solemnly pronounce by the authority of St. Peter through me. Or- a great, a good example is um, one called Unam Sanctum. That's like a famous one that really traditional Catholics like to give. And actually the last, all we have is a summary of it. So we don't have the actual bull itself. Um, let's. Let me give, it's actually the ending of it um, is a pretty good example of what an official pronouncement would look like. That's good. I think we need to have that just to make sure we're clear here. Let me see. Here we go. Um, and it's at the very end. Unam Sonicum is also a great resource. It's like one page long. It's tiny. It's very, very short. All right. Furthermore, we proclaim, we declare, and this is using the royal we, which is a classical Latin usage. That was adopted from the Roman emperor, so it's a it's a symbol of making an authoritative pronouncement. Um, let me see where if it's on here. Yes, okay. We declare, we proclaim, we define that it is absolutely necessary for salvation that every human creature be subject to the Roman pontiff. So that's unambiguous. I would like it's to a, point like, something out here. There are a few times where he does use that we terminology, um, especially when it comes to the uh, death sentence. Well, the, the we is used all throughout every encyclical. Yeah, and the other thing is, too, I, you should bring up, I did not get to that point in the encyclical, so I would like to us to bring that up. But I had more general thoughts on the way Pope Francis wrote this. And... Um, are we good to just jump in from here? Is there anything more we want groundwork we want to lay? Yeah, I was I was going to not yet. Um, I was going to say, kind of going off of that. Yeah, I've read the whole thing, and I there's definitely is sometimes where he does use a we, but it seems more that he's talking about we as in the church and not mm-hmm. with authoritative sense. Yes, Francis's encyclicals are they're they're more they're more friendly than. Then wow. past encyclicals, you say... Like, the royal we is a specific usage. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And when he actually does say something that is clearly her, his personal opinion, he's actually very clear. He's saying something like, I, you know, as I've said before, you know, in some statement or something. So he actually does make that kind of clear. He has a distinction. But yeah, I, yeah. What, what are we drinking tonight? I'm drinking water. Um. Yay. H2O. I am I, drinking an, a Devil's Backbone O-Fest lager. Oh, that's pretty good. Smooth, malty, and caramel notes. Nice, nice. I, yep. am, drink, I am drinking... Go ahead. Go ahead, Dad. Bourbon. 
It was Ooh. a gift from my girlfriend. It's actually pretty shitty bourbon, and it's also made in Colorado, not Kentucky, which means it's not bourbon. But it was a gift from my girlfriend, and my Jefferson Reserve is just – it's its too good to be drunk too often. So, I'm Dan, Dan, let's try that again. Let's try that again. Tell her how it tastes. <laughs> Monica, I really love the fact that you are so thoughtful, but <laughs> this bourbon – Joe, take that out. Take I that am, out, Joe. I, she listens I, to the podcast. Come on. Okay, wait. What is Neil drinking? I am drinking. I am drinking uh, St. Arnold's. So uh, St. Arnold's is a is a, um, a Texas local beer, and I think it's quite good. You were drinking that last time. Yes, I was. I'm drinking more of it. I am drinking a classic cup of tea in my snuggle season mug oh with God. some half and half and sugar, and I'm loving oh, it. The doobie snuggle season, though. <laughs> yeah, I hope it. I hope it's not caffeinated at this hour. It is caffeinated. Oh, I got a better one. I have Joe. Okay, now that we all right, you got mad. Yeah, there. yeah, we can we can hop in. So, does anyone have any initial reactions? I know, I know, we're all in very state varying states of actually having read it. Um, I have some good reactions. Or, I'm the only one that read the whole thing. No, okay, you, Joe. The Joes read it all the way through. Everyone else yeah. has all. Both of I, I got a good, so I think I got a full third through it. Um, and initial reaction, um, it's a mix of fluff, but I think there's, I'm highly critical of it, and I think there's some highly problematic elements. Um, but I, I reserve to give all that until, I reserve to give my full opinion until I'm able to just go on at length. We should not, we should not be. We should not be admitting right. how little we read of it. We should just pronounce our teachings on it <laughs> without our audience realizing. Right, right. I think they should know. What we're getting. I think they should know what we're getting. Uh, I have read about maybe the first couple of paragraphs, sections, and I've got a light scam. I've barely touched it. I'm going to be more reactionary in this episode. Got it. All right, McLaughlin. How about you? Um. I am trying to figure out how many times he used the word globalism in there. You are the globalist. He used it a lot. And the weirdest part is, too, the the globalism he talks about. Here's one of the weirdest things. Like, I notice this consistently. Like, he really thinks that he is coming in with this new, innovative, or, like, I guess, can I just go on, on, like, my general thoughts on this thing? Yes. Go on. Yeah, it's... It's kind of a, like, because everything kind of comes together at once, but fundamentally when I think about everything that I listen to, because I had this audio tape that I was listening to on my way to work and back from work, <laughs> and really my impression, my first impression was this is all really a bunch of fluff, like he's just kind of talking, he's got a lot of things that he's just, like he, Pope Francis must really like this out of his own voice, and what's funny is, <laughs> he has four of the five longest documents ever written in the entire history of the papacy. As an I do want to point out one thing. I just uh, searched document. He mentions the word global 43 times throughout the document. Goodness gracious. Yeah, it's Can I go off on a tangent about globalism real fast? Sure, so, why not? Sure. So la- last October, a year ago, I spent a week at Our Lady of Clear Creek Abbey in... Uh, Hulbert, Hulbert, Oklahoma, with the monks. 
And so, so it was lunch or dinner. Oh, so, so at, at their meals, they, they read from a text, either the Bible at one meal and a book, uh, um, some, some book from at, at, at a different meal. And I think it was, I, I think it was dinner when they read it, re- read this one. Uh, they were reading, uh, the, I think it's the days now far spent by Robert Cardinal Seurat. Um, and, and, and when they read there, they, they chant, they chant the, the reading. So, so they're reading this book in, in their chant while we're all eating, and and, and uh, Sarah is discussing globalism. So, so, so the monk in the corner keeps going, the globalists, the globalists, the globalists. And it, it, it was it was just very funny. Sometimes sometimes they're kind of like this kind of like muffled laughter, like like little snickers going through the monks, because 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 like a lot of, a lot of times it's just a. You know, you know, there's, there's some book being read in chant, and when you chant something, it just makes it a little funnier. So, I just want to yeah. say, let's not focus on what wasn't today, because I definitely want to talk about that in another podcast. I want to talk about the Chinese social credit score. I want to talk about how big tech is creating a globalist economy, and I think that's good for the next pod. So let's focus on. What's funny is too, like there are times where Pope, I get where Pope Francis is getting at, where like. Some of the things he's talking about, about people being left out in the economy is true in like a tech economy. Like you work at Amazon and you know how it is. Like I was just on the phone. So like my job at Navy Federal, we actually put our customers first. And it like, it actually shows in the way I have to operate. Like I have to basically kiss our customers' butts. And the reality is, is like they actually take their members very seriously. And I actually, it's like, other than, you know, I don't really like taking calls. Like that's a pretty boring thing to do, but I do appreciate the fact that at the end of the day, I don't have to feel like, you know, a shit bag who's selling it, who's basically selling people a crappy product or providing a crappy service. Like I am actually mm-hmm. providing our members a good service. And so I get where Pope Francis is coming from, especially in his like South American experience against the excesses and the problems that can come with capitalism. The thing that really gets me though, is he really thinks he's coming at this from an innovative perspective. And he thinks he's saying something that isn't being said by a thousand other people. But his liberal kind of, I don't want to say socialist critique, but it, it's not, it's very liberal. Socialism's too strong, but just liberal is too weak. His critique of capitalism is bland, and it's really been said a million times before. And he's using the language of the gospel very often to push a political message, or not even gospel language, but very spiritual language to push a political message. Uh, Joe Gehring, let's, let's, yeah. let's hear from you for, first. Uh, I just, I'm going to moderate this a bit more because I do not know what I'm talking about. So, Joe, yeah. Uh, no, I, I do agree. Um, when I, when not going to lie, when I first heard that he was coming out with this, I was actually a little, little excited um, because <laughs> we, First off, it's Pope Francis, and that makes me excited because it always causes ripples. Um, and second of all, Fratelli Tutti. Just you know, I liked the I liked the sound of the title, and I was I was a little disappointed. Um, I do agree with you, Dan, that a lot of it is very very bland. Um, not much is said. Um, there is he does have he does there are some good passages. There are some good things. But it's very, you know, I do agree. Like he's, he does, he presents it in a way that he, it sounds as though it's like, oh, I'm, I'm saying this, and I'm like, actually, 
these are all common critiques that have, the church has been making. The church and other people, I mean, across the political spectrum, have been making. Yeah, and like what, one of the things he does too is like clear language. When he frames a problem, so when he talks about, he'll talk about we need global fraternity, <clears throat> we need love of brother and brother, and so he'll have statements like that where it's these bland platitudes that no one is going to disagree with. And then what he does is he brings up either the market, capitalism, or something like when he talked about the rise of nationalism, how nationalism blinds people to the universal brotherhood of man or something like that. It's like, okay, I guess you're right, but why are you only bringing in the nationalists? What about the Marxists who are actually creating problems in our countries? What about the people who take liberalism too far and who abuse the ideas? The thing is, is it's very clear that he has a liberal bias or a liberal like of certain things. Like he just... He does not like capitalism. He does not like cultural conservatism. You have to go back to uh, where he has lived most of his life and where he's living now. I think that the economics in Italy and, you know, in Argentina where he grew up, I think it's it's more or less, it's not necessarily socialist, but it's more or less everything, all of the money is in the top, like, 2%. And all of the top 2% are in government. So, like, all of the taxes go towards these these huge governments that don't necessarily do anything. And they keep their countries in a third world, a third country perspective or whatever. But what he specifically talks about is, I don't think he shows the, the good in a, a market system at all. Especially, he, he seems to rip on the U.S. a few times, especially, I think, per with the uh, the nationalist thing that Dan was talking about. Yeah, I think that, well, the other thing, too, is if you look at the timing, so Robert D'Souza, or Father Raymond D'Souza in National Catholic Register, he had a write-up, and he's critical of Francis without being an asshole. Like, so many people who are critical of him are just, like, complete jerks. Mr. Um, Bergoglio. No, no, you really shouldn't say that. You really should not say that. I kid. I kid. Okay. okay. Uh, but, but he wrote about how every single time Pope Francis, when did he publish Laudatio Si? Right before the um, Paris treaties. When was his last, one of his last big ones, what was his last major one? Um, there are two other ones that he's published, but Laudatio Si came right before the Paris Accords. And basically what Pope Francis does is he times his encyclicals at political moments. When was this one released? Just before the United States election. What is he decrying? Nationalism. Pope Francis has a lot of distaste for Trump. I don't think he necessarily is wanting to push Biden. I don't think he has this underlying, like, I want to create these liberal structures and he wants to, like, push these. Like, he wants to do what Alex Jones thinks he's doing, where he's trying to push, you know, the UN globalist agenda. I just don't. As I, I've said this see, before. What you do see throughout the Can document I? is that um, you do see him talk about the, uh, he mentioned it specifically, I think I have the quote here, but he's talking about how there is a part of society that seeks to erase all of history. And I think that specifically is a critique on the left. So he is he is somewhat fair to, to both sides because he talks about that lack of history and filling it with you know, something that we've mm -hmm. already tried, stuff like that. And his immigration yeah. policies, more or less, are are actually surprisingly not conservative, but they do tend, they're not liberal in any means, you know, if you look okay. at it. I want to ask this question. So this is, first and foremost, I think, probably a political document. It, it sounds like the way you guys are making out is a political document. Me, who's, well, someone, who's, 
who is who is not read it as much. This is something that is re re like released by the Pope as an encyclical, and I want to say mm -hmm. the religious tint, which I assume there has to be one. I want to yeah. hear what is the sort of how does that sort of because it comes off the way you guys have been talking about it has been as a, as a political document. I want to hear more of the religious bent to it. Right. Um. So I do think I would not say it's a political encyclical per se. He does very heavily talk about political things, and he talks about much of what he talks about has political implications. No, it's a political encyclical. It was released. I, I, yeah, I think it's actually just a political. Let, let, I him, think talk, let him talk. Mr. President, Mr. President, let him talk. I, I, I think it's a social encyclical, which I think is slightly different than a political encyclical. Um, and I see. Sorry, I did yes. actually want to. I do want to ask you this: Where did you notice where he talks about Pope Francis talks about the marginalized who need a state to help them? Like Francis, almost completely, when he's talking about the charity needed for the disabled and those who grow up in poor homes, where he jumps to is not the greater communities of subsidiarity, first of like family, then of church, then of your community, then of your local state. He immediately goes to the government. Immediately, right. the concept and of I state. Yeah, I do see that. And to me, the biggest conflict in this encyclical, which I think Pope Francis does a terrible job at reconciling, is I think one of the biggest things that he wanted to address in it, and I don't think he did it well, is the the main conflict is between the global and the local. And he does he does later on have more insight into local countries and to local governance and to, in talking about how villages have to be formed and things like that. And I don't think he reconciles that because, for instance, later on, we'll, we might be able to get into this a little bit more, but he has a very big section dedicated to migrants. So I have, a, I have a direct quote, actually, speaking on what Joe was talking about, and I'd like to read it now, just so that we can have somewhat of a context as to yeah. what Joe was saying. So the quote that I have here is, um, start quote, the 21st century is witnessing a weakening of the power of nation states, chiefly because the economic and financial sector, sectors being transitional tend to prevail over the political. Given this situation, it is essential to devise stronger and more efficiently organized international institutions with functionaries who are appointed fairly by agreement among national governments and empowered to impose sanctions, end quote. So I think that, I think that backs up uh, what Joe was saying, because in essence, what, what Francis is saying here is that at this point, we're looking at a global economy and there's really no way, or at least he does not see a way for this to ever cease to happen. And he also sees that, well, he doesn't take into account the politics of the, the, uh, the issue. He's seeing that what you're seeing is the ones that are running the show are these huge financial firms. And they're the ones funding the economy, so therefore the people don't necessarily have a voice anymore, and it's shifting towards globalism. So, so in a sense, would ahead. you say that he is addressing a problem well, but he is not offering a solution? Um, I'd say he's addressing. See, the problem is, is when he addresses a problem, he very often goes in, goes to a problem, and then basically his distaste <coughs> for conservatives in general. And his distaste for people of a more traditional bent comes out almost immediately. 
every single problem comes back to some sort of reactionary person, someone who wants to build walls. I do kind of, I, I do agree with that. I think that he, he grabs, he does grasp very well the issues and how the issues are affecting people. But then as soon as he's like, oh no, people are being marginalized. People are in poor economic straits, whatever it may be. His reaction is instead of actually offering a very mediated and like well thought out position and concise position, he then rambles on for two paragraphs, more or less staying, saying what has already been said by the church, but just in a much more broad and generalized manner that can be interpreted. So you're saying that there's many nothing ways. really there's nothing really wrong with anything he's writing. He's just a bad. I mean, writer. I would. So my fundamental critique of this whole thing is that I think it's political language that is inherently divisive, guised, and spirit. Or it's no, it's political content that because it is framed in a certain light is inherently divisive, and is framed in spiritual language that is supposed to transcend politics. I think Pope Francis it very often takes a very specific, um, he takes, it's, I guess the best way I can phrase I think, I think this is a very telling line right here. And this is like the only, one of the only times that he is like right on the money with what he wants to say. I don't agree with it, but here's the quote, quote, there is a need to ensure the uncontested rule of law and tireless recourse to negotiation, mediation, and arbitration as proposed by the Charter of the United Nations, which constitutes a truly and fundamental judicial norm. There is a need to prevent this organization from being delegitimatized since its problems and shortcomings are capable of being jointly addressed and resolved. So what he is essentially saying in this you know, and it has a little follow-up in the end for the conservatives so that he's not saying give all power to the UN. But what he's saying is is that these economic um, these economies that we have set up, he seems to think that the people don't have any say in what goes on in the economies. So the rulers of the economies and the, the leaders, the financial firms are the ones that are going to shape the future for the people. At this it's a globalist argument and I think that it, it's made kind of um kind of uh what's the word poorly it's just not it's... no not poorly it's it's very subtle that's, See, that's the thing it's very subtle I think Francis, one thing he doesn't have is i just See, don't think he understands uh, the markets at all like I, he really doesn't get markets how is he expected to be he's, he's yeah a, but you can't be like he's like he understands he's negligently hey, he bought hurts okay he bought hurts when he was going bankrupt. like that that should tell you something. okay that's cardinal betchu cardinal betchu is corrupt like cardinal betchu tried to get cardinal pell out and there's <laughs> i don't want to get into that because that might that might be wrong but cardinal that, that was not yeah, francis. No. like francis can, francis can i just say can i just say my fundamental critique of this encyclical is that the English translation on Vatican.va does not use the Oxford comma, and it really threw me off reading it <laughs> a lot of times. Every time, every time he lists more than two things, I'm like, wait, like my my in, internal voice just says it wrong, and I have to go well, back see, and read. But it. The, 
the thing is, is that without the Oxford comma, sentences can just read completely differently. So it is it, the Oxford it's comma literally is necessary. essential. It is literally it is essential. an essential it is, it is piece essential. of grammar that has been lost. What is right. this? Let's so hear the I, 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 I liked it. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed reading it. I don't think necessarily, like, if I, if I don't have a positive reaction, I want a listener to be able to hear me and say, why is Dan so bitter? And, like, if I am being excessive or if he sees that, then I think the listener will be able to, like, discern that there's something more wrong with me than the document itself. Hey, listen, he talked about racism. Yay. <laughs> the thing is, is I, I did laugh because... When he, I, I commented on this, I forget, in my comment, or in my thing here, he does, he does mention racism uh, quite a bit, um, either as racism or xenophobia, which xenophobia is kind of nonsense, um, because it implies that it's an irrational fear. Um, I think that strikes down your argument that this is not a political document, Joe. I think we can all agree that if racism is in there, it's directly well, related. Well, no, because the, the, the church's teachings on racism are not political because racism is not an Yeah, but the way, the way Francis talks about it, the way Francis talks about it is very political and is very tinged with Marxist ideas. It is very dangerous. Like, the way he talks about it is very sloppy. I think it's very dangerous. But it's it's the general consensus. That's how they talk about it in Europe, because it's that's well, just how they talk about it. That this was this was my comment on it is lots of lots of people, particularly in Europe, like to point to America as some sort of backwater of you know racism and hillbilliness. And the thing is, is that Europeans are literally like Europeans are actually racist. Yeah, on top of like having no fears of migrants, and and I think that that's an issue that Francis completely ignores, and we can talk about that a little bit later. He ignores completely actual substantive fears of migrants. Um, Europeans are also just many Europeans are just actually flat out racist. Maybe now another thing is too, Francis might more be reacting to Italians because there's a current movement in Italy that is very. Sometimes justified, sometimes not. Yes. Well, it's actually, it's not sometimes justified, sometimes not. There's a mixture of legitimate wanting to protect the nation of Italy, and then there's just legitimate bigotry and prejudice bound up in, who's that guy? Salvini. Correct. In Salvini's party. And so it's yeah. like, it's a very problematic. That because is... it's, it, they're both, they're not like these separate things where it's like, well, you know, sometimes he's right, sometimes he's wrong. Like, there's a legit desire to protect the nation of Italy that is intrinsically bound up with good things in valuing Italian right. heritage and in bad, bigoted treatment of Africans. Right. And that's that's where I that's where I said that there's a lot of tension in this encyclical that I don't think he reconciles because he talks about that. He talks about how if a people don't have respect for their history, if they don't have respect for their traditions and their elders, and they're going to lose part of who they are. And that that national character is so important. And the thing that I kind of picked up on this and like not to put words in his mouth, but typical of many more liberal thinkers in America and elsewhere was I was picking up on this idea that 
the native cultures outside of Europe are to be preserved and protected because they are wholesome and good, and we have to keep them as such. But the European culture is the corrupt culture, yes. the corrupt, the corrupting force. In the world. And and I don't I, think that's guys, I don't think me, that's the big point. Neil, that big, did Big Neil completely disconnect? No, I'm okay. Still here. All right, I just wanted to make sure you were still in. One thing I wanted to say is Pope Francis I, I wants think... to. I'm sorry, Joe. I cut you off. Go ahead, Joe. No, I was just. That's okay. all I was going to say is I just. I think. I think that that is there. I think that he doesn't say it, but it seems implied because he talks a lot about cultures being destroyed by yeah. globalism. And as much as we might like to dismiss globalism, globalism is mainly a result of Western culture. It's mainly Western result, culture it's that has mainly a failed of capitalism. Like I, I would actually, I would be well, willing to grant. That. Yes. Well, but I would say that capitalism is mainly a Western structure as well. But it's Western structure. It's Western culture without the grounding of Christianity. And so he seems to, I, I think that there's that tension there and he doesn't, he never reconciles it at all. So there are three things right. that I want to say. The first is Francis very often talks as if he wants to rise above the conflict and then just goes back into it on a very specific mm. side. So he talks about universal brotherhood. And then he goes into the whole paragraph about the rise in nationalism and toxic nationalism. And I can just hear kind of an annoyance with America in the background. Whereas I'm like, do you really understand the complexity of what's going on in the American situation and all the good and bad that's bound up there rather than simply calling nationalism exclusive and reactionary. So where he wants to transcend, it's very often in those moments where he wants to unite people that he actually becomes the most divisive and the most authoritarian. And I've heard Francis, well, like, I, I think he is very authoritarian. I don't think he's very sharp. I think he's liberal. I don't actually think he's massively liberal. I, I don't think he's like, I think there are much uh, worse bishops and cardinals in the church. Second thing I want to say about him, he has very bad exegetical skills. I don't think Pope Francis is looking at the documents yeah. that he's looking at and taking them too seriously. So one of the things he says is he says um, in paragraph 71, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus does not offer alternatives. He does not ask what might have happened had the injured man or the one who helped him yielded to anger or thirst for revenge. Jesus trusts in the best of the human spirit. For this parable, he encourages us to preserve and love, to restore dignity to the suffering and to, the society, to build a society worthy of the name. This is like that raised a red flag. That I about wanted to explode when I read that because I was like, there is a literally a passage, I think it's in Luke. I can't remember which gospel it is, but I believe it's in Luke where Jesus said, no, it was in John. He said, Jesus saw the crowd, but he did not, Jesus saw man and he saw what was in man, but he did not trust man because he knew the hearts of man. And the whole point is, is because man's heart is so corrupt mm -hmm. that Christ cannot fully integrate. I, I see your hand, Joe. I have can you hold on for this and then one more point I want to give? Okay, yeah, thank sure. you. And so it's talking about like Jesus eventually when he dies and rises is able to entrust himself to the crowd. But the whole gospels are about convicting man of sin. And so like for Pope Francis to say something like that, I just think it's like it's dangerous. Like, I just think it's careless. And I think he's trying to prove a point. And I think that that sort of rhetoric should not come out of your mouth, especially in an encyclical even if it's long and even if it's saying a bunch of things that you want to say, like 
that like saying something like that, Jesus trusts in the best of the human spirit. Like that's so ambiguous. That's so laden with like, um, not maybe not euphemistic language, but um, I don't know. It th that that to me was very frustrating. The third thing I wanted to notice was he brings up a quote from John Chrysostom. So let's go ahead. Let me go ahead and look this guy up here. Let's do. Oh, is this is this uh, moving on to the private property? Yeah, so Saint John Chrysostom pointedly. Let's go up to. Um, all right. It shows that belief in God and the worship of God are not enough to ensure that we are actually living in a way pleasing to God. A believer may be untrue to everything that his faith may be untrue to everything that his faith demands of him, and yet think he is close to God and better than others. The guarantee of an authentic openness to God, on the other hand, is a way of practicing faith that helps open our hearts to our brothers and sisters. St. John Chrysostom expressed this pointedly when he challenged his Christian hearers. Do you wish to honor the body of the Savior? Do not despise it when it is naked. Do not honor it in church with silk vestments while outside the, while the outside it is naked and numb um, and cold. Paradoxically, those who claim to be unbelievers can sometimes put God's will into practice better than believers. One thing that really stood out for me here was like for all Pope Francis likes to complain about Pelagianism, he is sounding very Pelagian there, where he is taking and granted, this is one passage. I don't want to extrapolate it over the whole document, but this sort of careless use of John Chrysostom, very glib, like it was a very glib use of him in one of the two passages that Chrysostom is known for talking about the poor, where he says, look at John, look at him over here. He's supporting my point where we need to, you know, take human fraternity very seriously. Well, Francis has consistently played, I know, Big Neil, Francis has consistently played fast and loose with doctrine, most famously with Amoris Laetitia, and has refused to answer the conservative questions that have been posed to him privately, that have quietly been posed publicly, and then finally got rather aggressively posed to him publicly when he just adamantly refused to answer them. And then he takes these different exegetical points from other people and construes them in a way that, look, it, it, it benefits my point. I'm really Christian. Whereas he's using these people, he's not interpreting them in an authentic way. He's simply taking what sounds, he's he's taking them and using them to bolster his own point. And another thing is 60% of the quotes in his document are himself. Like 60% of Francis' quotes, the majority of his quotes are Francis quoting That's himself. Great. That's insane. Okay. Right. So I, I, wait, no, I had a quote that I wanted to read. So okay, Dan so was talking about, no, I'm going to, say it and then we'll we'll go move on okay. so dan was talking about um you know obviously the quotes that that triggered him the most and i wanted to go back to what joe's point was on the push for globalism more or less through this encyclical and how it might not be you know political and how it doesn't really hint at you know down with conservative up with globalism something like that uh, 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 uh. I, 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 I never said that he was pushing for globalism. In fact, I think he's very, very critical of globalism to the point of not liking globalism. I think that this is a, actually a major critique of the problems with globalism. Um, I think that there's a, there's a substantial amount of this document that's aimed at critiquing all, all the bad 
of globalism. Now, granted, he doesn't come up with a great solution. And I mean, we all know that the solution is a holy Roman Catholic empire, but <laughs> he, he does, he does, I don't think he praises globalism into any. Okay, well, let me, let me read the quote and then we'll, we'll talk about it after. How about that? Okay. Uh, okay, we need to be wrapping this up, so really quickly. Go ahead. Okay, well, it's a long quote, and I'm going to say no. it all, so you're going to have okay. to wait. Okay. okay. All right, so I think this quote in particular gets swept under the rug because it talks about the United Nations, and everyone just scoffs at it, okay? But he specifically says, quote, The seven years since the establishment of the United Nations and the experience of the first 20 years of this millennium have shown that the full application of international norms proves truly effective and that failure to comply with them is detrimental. The Charter of the United Nations, when observed and applied with transparency and sincerity, is an obligatory reference point of justice and a channel of peace. Hence, there can be no room for disguising false intentions or placing the partisan interest of one country or group above the global common good. If rules are considered simply as means to be used whenever it proves advantageous and to be ignored when it is not, uncontrollable forces are unleashed that cause grave harm to society, to the poor and vulnerable, to fraternal relations to the environment, and to cultural treasures with irrevertible losses for the global community. What this quote is basically, it's a referendum on the whole coronavirus thing that Trump pulled out of the World Health Organization. He also, you know, badmouthed the UN quite a few times. But this is a direct referendum on Trump's actions when it comes to coronavirus. And you see it played out line for line here. He talks about nationalism. He talks about how if you put one nation ahead of others, he does it's not meant it's not meaning China, of course, it's meaning the US then it can no longer globalism can no longer work. So what he's saying here is that the only thing that stands in the way of globalism is the United States and the uh, market economy that we have here. That's how I would that's when I read the document, that's how I interpret it. And I think that, that if you look at through his lens, like Dan was saying, he's very hard on Trump quite a few times and i think this is just a very low hit that kind of just solidifies the entirety of the document all right joe right gary right. you get one uh, point before we move on one point before we move well on. i do i do want to i do want to briefly touch on there's there's three other things i think that we should just mention it there are short things that we will be hey, able Neil, to actually don't think this is a good discussion like there, i think we're we're yeah yeah don't don't try to rush it um yeah. but i yeah there's 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 three other things I want to talk about after I cover this. But first off, that quote, I love it. I don't see any problems with it. Uh, the quote that you read about the United Nations and the role of it, I legitimately don't find anything wrong with it. Two, um, I'm how how uh, how Joe? How do you I'm not, not find a, anything wrong with it? I'm not a nationalist. Hey, wait, wait, I am wait, wait, not wait, wait, a nationalist. Explain it, okay? Explain your Joe, stance two, on this. Two minutes on, on this thing. Un, 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 uninterrupted. <laughs> Thank you, Susan. Um, no, I, I don't, I don't, I don't have the quote up in front of me, but I, I legitimately don't find any problems with it. Now, yes, if you read it in reference, as in Francis boohooing Trump, 
then yeah, I suppose if you're... Even if you don't read it in that context, Joe, he is holding up the UN, which is one of the most corrupt organizations in the entire world. Yes, but, I mean, how does he start that off? He starts it off by saying when it follows the original charter and ideas. I mean, the UN could be a good organization uh, if it did follow the idea. The globalism, the globalism of the UN, the global, the uniting principle of it, I just think is a, a rights-based, not even a rights-based ethic, is a post-World War II um, ethic of rights, which is based on materialist, not maybe not consumption, but is a materialist conception of happiness that is just not a good metric. Like, I think it's a dangerous metric. But but there is a reason no, why I, he praises I, the UN. Right, there's guys, a reason. We, listen, we listen, listen. To, there's a reason why he praises we, the UN. Guess who was the founder of the UN? Guess which country? Argentina. Okay, this was what he was taught throughout his entire life that the UN was the savior of Argentina, and they are the the founder of everything that is good in the global society. Garen did not get his two minutes uninterrupted. Garen, I don't know. To me. To me, I just, I mean, you, you, you already, need to read the quote again, Joe. You already know that I'm ha very critical of capitalism, so I'm not going to go into that. But I just, I think that he hits on something. I think that he does hit on something that is quite essential. And Dan, I do agree with what you said. I mean, you know, I think that the United States Constitution is flawed. Therefore, how much more flawed can the uh, UN Constitution or chart? But no, I do agree with what you say. And I, that is, that's actually my biggest with his entire encyclical maybe i don't know i may have said that there was another bigger one but one of my biggest problems is that the entire encyclical is coming from a liberal rights-based perspective of human nature and it does not address the spiritual he leaves out the spiritual reality in the political and he basically only speaks about the materialistic political ends i think it's a, it's a good about spiritual yeah. political ends that's um, a good with with the whole with the whole globalism thing, I mean, I'm not a nationalist. I do think that globalism, as as it's commonly known, is very flawed, and I do think that it is not healthy. I think that globalism currently is much more of a danger to society than nationalism. But I don't think that a critique of nationalism is wrong. Um, if he if he was a little bit fairer in critiquing globalism, which I like I said, I think he does critique globalism quite a bit in this document. Um but if he was a little bit fairer with that, maybe maybe it wouldn't be so triggering. But the the thing is is the way Pope Francis holds up the way Pope Francis holds up the UN is not in the manner in which he criticizes globalism. His globalism is a market that seems to it's heavily implied that is led by the US and leaves out most all criticism of China, which is actively colonizing Africa right now. And the way he holds up the UN is almost as if it's a bulwark against economic globalism, which maintains a sense of dignity of locality. So it's almost as if the UN is keeping, is ensuring the local dignity of the indigenous peoples and the smaller cultures in the world. And I, I, I think that he does have that perspective. Well, I can't say, I don't want to say he does have that perspective. No, I actually, I, that's too far for me to say. And I really don't know. Oh, I was going to say, I I agree with that, Dan. I, I legitimately do agree with everything you said there. Um, he does, 
I think I think the problem is is that because of his mindset, he can't see an alternative working to the UN. The UN is what exists, and that's what he that's what he's familiar with, and so that's what he turns to when he sees corruption on a global yeah. scale. He turns to I the UN. Think that's, true as well. I, that, that's nonsense. I think there can be there 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 is an alternative to it. There's an alternative to the idea of universal human rights. You know, there's. And the sad thing is, is that he should be coming from the rich Catholic intellectual tradition that can draw on the alternatives to all this, you know, nonsense. Guys, I think Big Neil, Big Neil has a question right now. Can we, let's get, let's see what Big Neil says. These comments are good. I love the, I like the discussion is great. And this is like the thing that we should be doing. When something like this comes out, we need to be talking about it. It's very obvious. Uh, but then again, we have to be aware of the fact that this is the sort of thing that takes, I mean, me and a couple of us have not finished it. I haven't read it that much. I haven't given much because of that. But this is the sort of thing that it doesn't just take one read to get through. It takes uh, multiple reads and a fine-tooth theological comb. It doesn't take a fine-tooth theological comb, my friend. <laughs> normally, when you are, normally when you are reading an encyclical, it is always a good idea to make sure you read through it a couple of times. That's not get... how Francis writes. That's not how Francis it's writes. I'm sorry. Like I, yeah, it's not, a, it's not a normal encyclical. Granted, it's the longest encyclical. The other thing is, issued. it's fluff. Uh, there, there's a fair amount of fluff, but the more we talk about it, I do think there is like actual content behind it. One thing I do want to say is, I don't think that Francis is going to be, unless he's followed by a liberal, which he may or may not be, I don't think he's a particularly influential pope, and I don't think he's listened to. He's not listened to like, Benedict was, he's not listened to like Francis was. Like, the Catholics who are forming other Catholics are pretty much actively ignoring what he's been writing. Laudatio C, he got, he made a little mm -hmm. bit of buzz, but people didn't really pay attention. Amor Laetitia, he turned a lot of people off. He didn't answer very fundamental, he didn't answer like, hey, can I have sex with someone whom I'm remarried to even after I, like, whom I, after I divorced and simply remarry someone? He's never, ever answered that question. And that was, He's Six, very ambiguous. That was five years ago. Yeah. Five years ago. He still hasn't answered that question. So when that happened, so, I think he that really just drew a massive shed of people. Now, if you pay close attention to how he's acting right now, he's actually seems the dial does actually seem to be turning. Cardinal Pell, who's a good, a very good cardinal, who was put in prison on sex abuse charges, which were like Total bullshit. If you read his story, it's unbelievable that that man was convicted. Oh, yeah. Absolutely one of the worst travesties of justice. It's it's very good he got out of prison. Cardinal Pell just came back. Well, Francis, just like Cardinal Betchew, go. And if the time, like, Francis is constantly kind of, like, in between being someone who, like, that's the way I can describe him is he's honestly, like, this weird liberal mix of, like, Dave Rubin and Donald Trump where he's just like somebody who I don't think is like has all the answers, has like an intellectual, like I don't think he actually has grounding that he fully understands himself. I don't know. Well, you know. see one thing, one thing that I would say is that Francis comes from a different theological background than we do. Um, Granted, it's a theological background that is heavily in influenced by libertarian theology, theology which has been liberation. Yeah, liberation theology, which is very different, very different. more or less been condemned. More or um, less. So, dude, liberation theology is what happens when you take 
Marxist Marxism and like blended in with theology. And there are a few ideas and few thinkers more condemned in the church than communism and Marxism. Anywho. There's no argument uh, saying that the church supports we can, anything having to do with we can, communism. Communalism, we can, we can get communalism maybe, but not communism. We can get into that argument. No, it's not even um, an argument. Wait, 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 okay, wait, 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 and also, also private property. I, I think the death penalty is obligatory because we're rational beings. Like, I actually think the death penalty should be applied pretty much without question concerning certain crimes, like child rape. Let me read you the quote. Can you give me? Yeah, Let me read you the me quote. Today what? we state quote. Today we state clearly that the death penalty is inadmissible, and the church is firmly committed to calling for its abolition. Inadmissible. That's the point. He's using language. Inadmissible is not a word that's been used in moral theology before. He's, it's ambiguous. Yes, that's the it's point. Very ambiguous. This was a, this was a, Just like the last time. Yeah, this, that's what I was here's saying. Here's the thing. Here's what I would say. One, I do think that the death penalty should be abolished in the United States. However, I'm also strongly in favor of the use of death penalty to enforce some things. So, for example, we come from the legal and the theological background, because we're coming from English common law, that at one time found it not only okay, but actually morally just to execute heretics. Um, English common law had the backing to execute heretics. And to be frank, if the, if the government was... Um, subordinated to the church, I would say that we should execute heretics once again. I think that Francis's argument against the death penalty only addresses three of the arguments for the death penalty. So the common three arguments, well, actually, it's like one and then two are that are combined. The common two are that the death penalty is necessary because what we have to protect the citizens and so that's the one that he addresses. And he says, well, what, what developed nation now doesn't or needs the death penalty to protect citizens? And I would say, yeah, that's a fairly decent argument. And that's why I think in the U.S. it should basically be at a federal level. We don't need it. Now, I think. What about in the rest of the world? Okay. Hold depends, on. Okay. depends on the country, really, because okay. have, you know, okay. prisons. Um, but stop, the other... stop, start over. Say it again, because Neil was talking. I'm just starting. Um, the other, the other reason for the death penalty is that it is just because they have committed such a grievous crime, such a violence against human nature, that they have forfeit their own right to human nature, and so that it is just for them. And then on top of that, which I was, this is why I was going to say there's three, but I don't know if you, this one is really a good one. But the other one is that if their crime is so grievous and they have 
forfeited their own human dignity, then giving them a set time of death is actually spiritually beneficial for them because it gives them time to reconcile their soul to God instead of leaving them in limbo. So it's actually merciful to give them a set execution date because then they are forced to reconcile with God instead of just potentially dying one day without ever having that made that, you know, confrontation. And so Francis does a good job at saying, well, yeah, we don't need, we don't need to kill people just to protect citizens. We have high security prisons. We don't need that. He doesn't address the other issue. Instead, he, he goes on about how human dignity can never be lost. And that's, I, I do disagree with that, especially when you're talking about putting souls in spiritual things. I don't think that human dignity and, can be lost, sure. but I do think that what happens is, is when you do certain crimes and commit certain crimes, one, you do such a contradiction to your own nature because you're a rational being and you have debased yourself or done something so wrong. It's mm -hmm. like, there's only one thing that you can really do to set yourself at right. You have to pay some super high price or the ultimate price. The other thing is you've done a great wrong against society itself, against the greater community in which you live. And guess what? We owe it to you to retribute to you. The, an original Catholic doctrine concerning penal systems and penal codes, the number one point of a criminal justice system is not to rehab the criminal and isn't actually to defend society. The number one thing is to retribute to the criminal what he is owed by society and what he owes society. So when people do certain things, yeah. child molestation, guess what? You fucked up. You owe a big, big freaking price. And that price is your life. You're going to pay it, like it or not. And it's because you're a human being. It's yeah. not in spite of the fact that you're a human being. It's not in spite of the fact. It's not because you lost your dignity. It's because you have this dignity and you violated it. Guess what? Right. When people well, shout about Trump being this unpresidential guy, it doesn't make him any less the president. It just makes him the greater violator of this office that he holds. Right. That's that's why you're right. I was mistaken. To Nodar, say that lost. That's why I think. Forfeit is a better Nodar, word Nodar, than law. Nodar has something he must say. Okay, yeah. Joe, Joe your point about uh, the uh, uh, forfeiting your human dignity um, and therefore deserving to die, some, you said something about that. Um, yeah. That was one of your points. Uh, that, that's from uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, where he, he's, he, he, said, he says it's, it's a sin to kill a human being, but, but there, there are some sins, some crimes where, where you, like, you know, you know it, it's not a sin to kill an animal, so the the death penalty is just in Let that case vegan. because they're because they have forfeited their their human through dignity. The rationality, through, right? Yeah, the rationality right. through the through this crime, and then, right. and then, and then also the the punishment aspect of it all, um, uh, as Dostoevsky says, especially through crime punishment. Um, um, there, there's a quote. I'll I'll find it somewhere. I can't find it right now. I have the book upstairs, but um. But 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 he points out how how uh, 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 hum, humans who have cr committed grievous crimes want they, they want to suffer for this crime they they want to be punished because the punishment is the it's the retribution for the crime it mm -hmm. purifies you right. and 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 that, that that's something that the human soul wants 
Right. See, that kind of ties into like what I was saying, like the last point, like it gives you a set date, like you, you're, that's your punishment and you have to kind of make your peace Dude, with this that. Podcast, you know, you get any, like any, so anybody who is somewhat liberal in the criminal justice about like the idea of criminal justice, this is like the ultimate triggering podcast where you're like, oh yes, this criminal deserves to die regardless of the circumstances. Which, you know, isn't totally what we're saying, but I think that's not an unfair caricature. If someone were to take that away, that's not actually an unfair caricature. Oh, and then, so I thought I thought the death penalty was, I think that that was a pretty interesting point on Francis's behalf. And like I said, I think that it's because he's ignoring spiritual violence. He's he's very much clued into the idea of physical violence I don't think, against I don't think, I wouldn't say Pope Francis is ignoring it. I just don't think he understands the significance of it. Right. Um, and then and then the, obviously there's just the just war section. And I thought that that was kind of interesting because I do actually agree with him, because what he says is that it's. Um, he says it's very difficult nowadays to invoke the rational criteria elaborated in earlier centuries to speak of the possibility of just war. And I would agree with the idea that. A just war cannot. Um, target civilians, and I would agree that the way that warfare now happens, it is basically impossible to carry out a just war. I don't know, do you have any comments on that, Nablok? Yeah, so uh, I think that a perfect example of how that, you're, what you were saying is, is, it can be true, but I think that just wars can be waged, and I think a good example of that is Trump's war on ISIS. And, you know, we, with, with the technology and the intel that we had, we really only, I think we only harmed one or two civilians and we were yeah. able to like obliterate the caliphate. And that, right. that also has a, <clears throat> that also has in the Catholic church, it has a just cause because the, the caliphate is directly well, um, there's, the there's, the there, just war is a little bit more. I'd, I'd be a lot more reticent about saying anything. Than that's that. just an example. I'm just saying that war is now more. Um, we're able to. We know where everyone is. We knew where uh, uh, Soleimani. We knew where Al Baghdadi. The problem is, we, knew, is like, we is, know is where killing, all the like, Soleimani really helping the situation in the Middle East. Is it actually helping in general, or is it taking yeah. out a guy that we don't like that is causing us problems? But in the long run, is keeping like the rest of the Middle East stable. Like, who is the guy who was killed in uh, the second half of Desert Storm? This guy, Saddam Hussein, was his name. So Saddam Hussein, Hussein no, was the oh, dictator yeah. of Iraq, and he was a cruel dictator. But the thing was, as soon Isn't as he they arrested the development, yes, like that was the guy that George C. was building houses. <laughs> Why didn't we know that, bro? We should have known that. <laughs> anyway, anyway, Saddam Hussein. Anyway, okay, the fine. point is, is like, <laughs> is killing Hussein, which I think they did, They there's Desert Storm, and I think there are like two spot parts of it. Killing Hussein is actually a problem. It actually destabilized the Middle East, even though he was a tyrant. In some ways, you can be like, oh, we justly killed him. Like, the U.S. has had a consistent history of going places we have no business in being. If we do not directly take the area and make it into a state, we basically go in, kind of turn the political situation into a bunch of mush, and then leave. And we were in... Well, that's the... 
that's the issue with uh, America. We we act like an empire, but we don't take care of the citizens. We well, because we, we actually have, we, we think it's a moral obligation to leave them alone. Like we actually believe we have a moral obligation. To leave that's neocons. That's neoconservatives. We don't. That's we, not I know Trump isn't a neocon, so I'm not trying to pin this on him. And I'm I'm very happy Trump is not a neocon. Neoconservatism is horrible. Like I'm glad John Bolton left the office. Like John Bolton yeah. was not the person I wanted in in that yeah. position at all. Dude, John Bolton was just in there for negotiations. That's it. John Bolton? No, no, no. No, John, John, Bolton. John Bolton. He was basically just a Trump. Trump could pull him out of his back pocket and threaten him with war. So, so then the last the last thing that I thought was interesting is Francis's discussion on private property. And he has a chapter called Re-Envisioning the Social Role of Property. Um, and oh, in it, he states that in it, he states that, for my part, I would observe that the Christian tradition has never recognized the right to private property as absolute or invaluable and has stressed the social purpose of all forms of private property. And then later saying, all other rights having to do with the goods necessary for the integral fulfillment of persons, including that of private property or any other type of property, should, in the words of St. Paul the Sixth, in no way hinder Oh, but should actively slip its implementation. <laughs> so I I just thought that that was pretty interesting because doesn't St. Thomas Aquinas have an you should read you should read Rerum Novarum if you want to hear a pretty strong defense of private property you should just read <laughs> Rerum Novarum like this is this is pretty I did not get to this point at that's a pretty dangerous thing for him to say and frankly it's just not like it it's it's. Well, I get kind of where he's coming from because there is an element in the Christian tradition where private property is not considered solely yours. There's something called the universal destination of all goods towards like God. But where Francis is coming at this from, like he's making the case way stronger than it is. Like all things considered, the church has consistently been a pretty damn strong defender of private property. Now, what I would say is he does he he does elaborate a little bit more. Obviously, I took the 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 meaty sentences, and basically what he's saying is that, um, is that the right to private property is not a primary right, if you want to use damn rights language. It's Aquinas does kind of say things that back that position up. The idea of private property being a secondary right does have some standing, like you were saying, with the, you know, <laughs> no, you're all flipping me off. <laughs> I know, I don't know, it's Japan, it's Japan. But, but I think, I think he is on to, he is on to something that I'm not fully uh, in disagreement with. Interesting. I'll have to look more into it. I have to have, read it and go over it with a fine tooth comb. I haven't, uh, I haven't done that enough. But um, I can kind of see where you're coming from, Joe. Because, um, but if he's looking at it in in the lens of specifically the United States, our view of private property. Well, he's is not right. Well, what I'm saying is our view of private property as a inherent right is very different from the view of private property in other economies. You know. A lot of these these socialists, there's no incentive to own private property in these socialist economies and the globalist economies because there's no way that it can benefit the person in the long run either by you know 
creating a form of wealth by rent seeking or handing it down to their their kids as a piece of equity that they can that they have invested in our our view of private property in the US is very very different from other people's views and i think that especially in argentina looking at the way that he's like i continue to go back to the argentina thing because that's actually where he got a lot of his beliefs and if you look at the economy yeah. in Argentina, if you look at the the social economic structure in Argentina, it is very very similar to what happens what he wants to happen in the UN. But if you also look at if you look at Argentina, it's a developing country. What happens with their economy is they have major highs and major major lows. So basically whenever whenever the markets crash, they get wrecked. There are so many people that are just out of jobs. They have the poverty rate, the rates skyrocket. That's what happens specifically in his. Um, and he talks about trickle down uh, when he talks about the economy. There's no trickle down in Argentina, and the trickle down in Argentina is basically through the major corporations that create jobs. But in the United States, we don't see a Great Depression every five years like they do in Argentina. You know, at, in a in a more no, I mean we just see system. we just see steady income inequality, right? Yeah, and another thing too that I think is actually important is like Pope Francis is actually pretty myopic. Like I really think he has a hard time seeing what's actually going on in like other places. Like his way of looking at the world sure, is sure. totally no, from South American that. perspective, and he has not been able to break out of it. JP two, he was JP two was actually pretty conditioned by his environment, but was still able to break out of it. Benedict XVI was also able to break out of his, um, but like, but Francis is like horribly, like he's pretty. But look, look, there, there are different, there have been different types of popes. John Paul II was the unifier, right? And he went hand in hand with Reagan a lot because Reagan was also the unifier. The next you had Benedict, who was the, the pope who created the most, um, did he create the the most uh, content when it came to like divine liturgy and stuff like that? Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong. He, I, I he feel like he wrote a um, lot about he published, the uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium, which allowed trads to um, openly practice the. He said that the old rite of the mass was never abrogated, which everybody thought that it was, and okay. he said no, it wasn't. So, so more or less like creating a bridge between the uh, pre. Uh, Vatican II mm -hmm. Catholics and being super like okay. unabashedly un orthodox, like just. But under him too, we got remember when we had the um, the re the refresh of the mass um, under Benedict mm -hmm. because he wanted to. Well, that was that was that was set in motion in the nineties, so that wasn't under Benedict. That was just the U.S. bishops taking. But he pushed it through fifteen years through. to uh, to get around to doing. He pushed it through though. No, I would agree. What my point is, my point is, is that the Pope we have now should not be the economics Pope because he comes from Argentina. Yeah. We should not have a Pope that preaches on economics and politics and almost exclusively floats ideas out there. And we, we got to, I don't know if you guys read anything about what the media said and what, you know, rad trads are saying and stuff like that about this particular encyclical. But conservatives are hating on it, and the left is, like, eating it up and just... Yeah, and the thing is, is like, there's no way... This is not, like, a middle of the road. This is not one that even tries to take in multiple perspectives. Like, this is all Francis's ideas. And, like, 
he is pontificating them for lack of a better word. Like, but, but really, I mean, he is, he truly is. And it's like some people like it and some people don't. And he doesn't seem to be making much of an effort. How many times does he quote himself? He, that's over 60% of the quotes in there is himself. Like he does not seem yeah. to be making much of an attempt. Like for all he talks about bridges, he doesn't seem to be making much of an attempt to bridge with those with whom he disagrees. And that's something that I think conservatives picked up on fairly early on and just kind of left him to float on his own boat. I really do. Well, at the start of the encyclical, he points out that, that, that the whole thing is going to be a collection of his past statements in different, mm-hmm. in different, you know, different areas, wherever he's written or spoken. Um, so, so, so he does say that it will be a, a lot of his qu- own quotes in the, yeah, at, at the start of the encyclical. He does frame it at the beginning to be more of a, like, there's just this element of like, wow, what I have to say is really important, and it just doesn't seem to be the case. Compare it to Paul the Sixth encyclicals per se. Like Paul the Sixth in his um, *Humanae Vitae*, he had to be like on the freaking money with that encyclical, and he quoted the Catechism, he quoted the Bible, he quoted learned scholars, he quoted the hell out of that encyclical. But I don't think he quoted himself at all, really, in past. And I don't know what the typical you should. I think like if you were to look at Benedict sixteen, like look at um, Paul the sixth, JP two, and Benedict the sixteen, and kind of look at you know what, what level. I think there's a fair amount of self reference, but I wouldn't say it's more than twenty percent. Well, Aquinas quotes himself a fair amount, but like mm. that's like no, 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 no. My, my point, my, my, the point I was trying to make was Aquinas. Aquinas, well, Aquinas quotes himself a lot, but but Augustine is his like the, the number. Well, yeah, one guy Thomas quotes. Aquinas quotes like, uh, like there are like, few like, people half 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 of the Summa, half of the Summa is quoting other sources. Yeah, and if Augustine, you read like Jerome, if you read even on the uh, Wikipedia Isidore, page, but if you go on Wikipedia, Thomas was one of the people who quoted more than anybody else. Like that guy knew so many other people, especially for his time period. Like Thomas was actually known. He is the quote yeah, master. He's like. He's like the Gurney Halleck, Gurney Halleck of theology. Well, he probably quoted Augustine so much because he knew he'd be next to him in heaven. Or above him. For eternity. Okay, so, boys, uh, I just want to put out there, like, this has been a good conversation. I think it's been yeah. great. Uh, the, the thing is that we don't want to just, as closing thoughts and kind of just a kind of anti, like, just to push it back against the reactionary methods upon which we've been kind of going off of most of the night we just like we have we very much speak our mind it's a very good thing uh this stuff needs a lot more of development mm-hmm. uh we need to you know this is the sort yeah. of thing where we can, and we want to be very stringent in in throwing blame or casting judgment on the pope he this did, will be a 10-part series now it will not <laughs> thank the lord it will not. i do i do i do want to say i've been extremely negative so i want to be what I want to put out there as a final disclaimer is I'm willing to be very critical of the things that Pope Francis says because I've seen where not being clear has led to problems with people, especially in doctrinal elements. So, But what I do want to say is there's nothing in this document I see that is heretical. There's nothing in this document I see that shows ill will. And so I do not want Catholics to look at this as a call to war or as a call to war against Pope Francis. I have been critical. I have been very critical of what I want to say here. But I do want to say that Pope Francis is still the Holy Father in this document. He is still the Pope, Papa Frank. 
<laughs> she was one word away. I've always called that. Okay, so that was actually Dan. Thank you. Disclaimer for everyone. That's applied to everyone, by the way, including me. I, that's, I wanted to put that out there. I have not been taking part much in this conversation. I've been more on the backseat moderator asking questions sort of thing. And I wanted to make sure that was out there. Because I want to know that anybody who's listening, regardless of faith, background, or anything like that. Um, I, that... I am not a set of the cantus. <laughs> I hope my comments don't come back to bite me <laughs> once I am Pope. <laughs> anyway, anyway. <laughs> so... The point being, no matter what your faith background, if you happen to be listening to this at some point, um, I just want to make clear the general uh, feeling towards the, the papacy that, that us Catholics have. We take it very seriously, and we take uh, papal infallibility seriously uh, as a teaching of the Church. Um, and so I just wanted to make sure that we were all on the same page with that sort of thing. We want to make that known to our listeners. But uh, Joe, you have something to say? Yeah, I was just going to kind of kind of go with that. And I I definitely possibly because I was low-key excited for the encyclical. I, I definitely may have read it in a much more forgiving light than other people here. Um, and like Dan was saying, there isn't anything uh, heretical. And, and I will reassert my position that if we lived in a Catholic world, Pope Francis would be a damn good Pope. Because we wouldn't have the nonsense of the misinterpretations. If we lived in a world where all the intellectuals were good standing, you know, the ones who weren't were burned at the stake, everything would be hunky-dory. Um, I I do think, I'm just going to go over because I have some notes about some good things. I do think he has some good points, like I said early on, about the role of the uh -huh. youth and the elderly in society and the importance of that. I think he calls out he calls out specifically radical individualism, which is very difficult to society. Um, he says it's a virus that's extremely difficult to eliminate. And I, to be honest, I, I do agree. I think that radical individualism is very damaging to society. Um, I mean, it's also very Protestant in nature. I I shudder every time I encounter a Catholic who is radically individualistic or anything like that um he also i think he makes he makes some good points that um we the, a person in in the in the same vein of the individualistic topic he, he makes some good points that people are meant to be parts of community people are meant to care for one another um and obviously that's kind of the whole vein of francis's papacy is he he is very very important or highlights that we have to be acting with with love and i think that sometimes he does misinterpret love as a feel good you know just helping people thing whereas sometimes i think that maybe he should interpret love kind of the way i do where in times you know, God is love, but God is also justice, and there's no contradiction in God. So love and justice are the same. And so I think that sometimes he he highlights one over the other to the detriment of his own teaching. Um but I do think yes. I do think that there are some some good little yes, nuggets Joe. in here. Um Joe, Joe, as you were saying, uh love and justice go hand in hand. 
it's like in Dante's Inferno, uh, when 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 you know um, above the gates of hell uh, are the words uh, uh, "Divine love created me" because hell exists because justice is goes hand in hand with love. So I think that's going to do it for us tonight, guys. I think that's a really good discussion. Uh, so real quick before we before we head out, I do want to say that uh, as Christendom graduates. Uh, this has been an interesting. Uh, it's been an interesting beginning of a week for us. Um, we did lo- lose one of our nearest and dearest professors, Dr. McGuire. Uh, there's a GoFundMe. We're going to throw that in the description of uh, most of our socials. Um, please consider supporting. It's um, Dr. McGuire was one of the is a brave man, one of the great men I ever knew. I want probably one of the probably the, one of the best teachers that any of us ever had. And so uh, finding a way to support uh, his family uh, is would be very important. So I just want to throw that out there. And also, like Joe, if, uh, where can they find that link and the rest of our information? Yeah, so make sure you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our handle is the Real TheRealLadCast. Um, it'll be on those three platforms. And then if you want to go to the blog, the blog is ladcastblog.wordpress.com. Um, we don't have enough to buy a domain yet because we're broke but we'll get there someday so go support and uh i think that's about it it's it's been real real. and cut we are done let me just make sure nice um, Nice. guys guys can we can we have it's been real be like the official closing of every podcast it's been the real ad cast